Good evening, and welcome to a great episode that we have this evening or day, wherever you are. And if this is your first time joining us, make sure you hit that like and subscribe button because you do not want to miss the latest content that we will be providing you. And for tonight's or this evening's episode, we have a special edition, and that is we are going to be highlighting some African Americans who have made some wonderful and I mean wonderful strides, whether it's in the nutrition, healthcare, wellness industry, we are going to be highlighting them. And at least for me, I always think of it from this perspective. I know we have Black History Month, but I feel like every month should be, or at least when it comes to history with African-Americans, it should just be included in history, okay? regimen versus it just being a month because at least for me when i've looked and researched you know so many people who've done many different things it is still many more that a lot of people may not realize aside from popular um individuals such as martin luther king jr malcolm x um madam cj walker you have so many individuals who still or who have done wonderful things, but don't get the recognition. And so at least that's just my take. Hopefully one day it will be in history books. So today I want to do my best and I apologize in advance if you see me looking here and there, because it is again, just a lot of information. And I want to make sure that these individuals who put in this work made these accomplishments. I want to make sure I get that right for you. So I'm sure you can understand that. So as we get started, Again, I want to go through some names. Some people you may have heard of, but then some you may not. But at least for me, as again, I was reading, I just found found it intriguing to learn about the stories and even to sometimes you have to think about what did a person have to go through in order to achieve some of the things that they did, you know, even the mental, the emotional, just issues that they had to face. So let's get started with it. And so one of the first individuals that I wanted to talk about will be Dr. Daniel Hale Williams, Dr. Daniel Hale Williams. Okay. And so one of the things about Dr. Daniel Hale Williams um, is that he pretty much, I don't want to get this wrong, but I want to say that he pretty much was the first African-American to perform a successful, okay, open heart surgery, okay? And so one of the uh, things about it was that there were other physicians. I think there was a physician by the name of um, um, Francisco uh, Romero and then Henry Dalton, who had previously performed uh, pericardial operations. And so the individual that he performed pericardial operation on, which uh, <clears throat> the pericardium is the membranous sac that covers the heart or it pretty much encloses the heart. And so there was an individual who was pretty much stabbed. And you have to keep in mind that Dr. Daniel Hale Williams did not have the modern technology that we do today. And he did not have a lot of the uh, blood transfusion equipment to deal with. So I could, I can't even tell you what he was working with, but he pretty much made it happen. He was able to 
performed this open heart surgery successfully. And that is pretty much a hallmark when it comes to uh, Daniel Hill uh, Williams. Let's see. We want to get into some other things about uh, Dr. Daniel Hill Williams because, you know, that's a hallmark. But then we have to look at the things that led up to that. Um, so he was an individual who pursued medicine um, as a career, um, an African-American doctor, of course. And he opened Provident Hospital which was the first medical staff to have an interracial staff. Okay. So just think about that. He, and this was in 1891. So before the, um, so before 1900s had started, he pretty much opened up an interracial hospital. Okay. And, um, and again, he was one of the first physicians, like I mentioned to perform, the first successful uh, periocardial surgery as a African-American. And so as we scroll down, there were some other things, again, that I wanted to highlight, and then we'll try to keep it moving. But at least I want to give you some insight in terms of what these people did, because this is awesome. So when we, uh, <clears throat> so as I look at it, uh, again, one of the things about it was that, you know, when it came to hospitals, I'm not sure what this region was, but it seems like it was um, in Providence. And it pretty much talked about how African-American citizens, they were barred from, you know, receiving health care at hospitals. And so you can imagine a person who was sick or had different types of medical issues. You are being denied access to hospitals and as well as getting the, the proper care. So you have two issues right there. But then Daniel Hill Williams, he was like, you know what? We got to change this. And so he pretty much, again, opened up Prophet Dan Hospital, like we talked about, and a training school for nurses. And this became the nation's first hospital with a nursing and intern program, again, that had a racially integrated staff. So this is wonderful things on top of wonderful things you know, about Daniel, uh, Dr. Daniel Hill Williams. And <clears throat> another key piece before I move on to me, I again thought that this was neat. Um, in 1895, so this was about four years after he opened up uh, <clears throat> Providence Hospital. So in 1895, he pretty much opened up as well as co-founded the National Medical Association. Now you had the American Medical Association but some backstory about the American Medical Association was that it did not allow African-American membership. So opening up the National okay, Medical Association, this allowed for African-Americans to have membership. And this was also a professional organization's organization, excuse me, for black medical practitioners. OK. And so, again, this served as an alternative because the A. MA, the American Medical Association, wasn't allowing membership towards African Americans, but the NMA said, hey, come on over here. Ain't nobody going to start this party. So that's pretty much a brief spill about Dr. Daniel Hill Williams. Obviously, there's so much more, but those are just some of the highlights. Another person that I really wanted to highlight in, let's see. So yeah, Dr. Patricia E. Bath, Dr. 
Patricia E. Beth. And you'll start to notice a trend that most of these individuals were doctors because you want to know what? They were really serious about getting the work done and they saw a need and they wanted to make sure that they were not, you know, lacking when it came to fulfilling those needs, you know, that they saw. So to me, I found that this is awesome. But Dr. Patricia E. Beth was an inventor, a laser scientist, an ophthalmologist, best known for her contributions to the blindness prevention, treatment, and cure. And so she also, you know, one of the other things that she did was she also uh, <clears throat> had a great impact when it came to public health and as well as having a patent for a device um, used for cataract surgery. And this was known as the laser FACO, okay, or laser FACO, if I'm saying it correctly. But she was able to file and she was able to receive a medical patent for this device. Now, again, this was actually during, I'm not sure exactly when this was, but likely during the uh, 50s to the 60s that she, um, <clears throat> or I should say probably the 60s or 70s um, that she did this work. Um, but at least in uh, between 1969, 1970, interned at um, Harlem Hospital in 69, in 1970, um, she completed a fellowship um, for ophthalmology at Columbia University in 1970. Um, then she became the first resident in ophthalmology. Excuse me, I'm trying to make sure I pronounce that word correctly. Um, this was from New York University. So she became the first resident there. Okay. So again, one of the things that she did was helping to bring, you know, an awareness when it came to awareness when it came to surgical devices in Harlem Hospital's eye clinic. Okay. And get this one thing that she did was she was able to persuade. Okay. She was able to persuade her professors to provide free care for those who are blind. And that is speaking volumes. Okay. When you can persuade professors saying like, hey, like, don't charge anybody for, you know, any fee. Like, they really need this work. And, you know, like, mm, we, we got to pay some bills. And to persuade individuals, that, again, is a, to me, a highlight, something that shouldn't be overlooked. Because, again, we have to understand, again, the conditions that a lot of, of these um, African-American um, medical practitioners that they had to deal with. And so this is, you know, to me again, a highlight when it comes to Dr. Patricia E. Bath, laser scientist, inventor, and ophthalmologist. Okay, excuse me. I messed that word up, but my apologies. So another person that we want to really highlight is going to be, and I'm just kind of throwing these out in random order, but it was actually, let me make sure. Okay, so this was actually Dr. Let me make sure I get the name right. <clears throat> Dr. Jane Cook Wright. Okay. So again, you start to see the trend. A lot of these are actually doctors, but Dr. Jane Cook Wright, she was pretty much the first black American woman to be named associate dean of a medical school. Okay. And she pretty much contributed to essential findings as it relates to cancer 
as, as well as created um, programs geared towards studying chronic diseases. So Dr. Jane Cook, right, she did some wonderful things and we're going to get into more of what she did. Excuse me. <clears throat> and so to me, I, I thought that this was pretty neat. Um, so just to give you some backstory, Dr. Wright became a visiting physician at Harlem Hospital. And it seems like Harlem was a, a pretty um, busy place with you know a lot of um, <clears throat> individuals who were going there and becoming physicians, or at least were physicians. Um, she became a staff physician at New York City Public Schools. Um, after joining her father, who was the founder and director of the Cancer Research Foundation at Harlem Hospital. So you can see that Harlem was going, it was moving. It had, you know, physicians who were ready to put in some work. And to be honest, I, <clears throat> if I was living, I would have wanted to be in that area because I know I was going to get taken care of. So Together with our father, Dr. Wright worked to advance research as it relates to anti-cancer chemicals and having achieved several patient cancer remission cases. And so after her father died, she became the director of the Cancer Research Foundation, okay? Cancer Research Foundation. And then it says three years later, at the age of 36, she became an associate professor of surgical research at New York University and the Cancer Chemotherapy Director at NYU Medical Center. Okay. So Dr. Wright, she was working. She was busy. She didn't have any time to play games. She was making some accomplishments. And you can hear that from, you know, what I just shared with you. And let's see. Oh, and this is also neat. So in 1964, Dr. Wright was appointed by President Lyndon B. Johnson to the President's Commission on Heart Disease, Cancer, and Stroke. The commission was instrumental in establishing cancer centers for chronic diseases nationwide. Okay, so <clears throat> let that sink in. Okay, so again, this was instrumental in establishing centers for chronic diseases nationwide, okay? So not local, okay, not isolated, but this is nationwide, okay? And this is what Dr. Wright did. And so, again, these are no small obstacles that, you know, these individuals accomplished. Listen, they set out some goals, and they said, you know what, we're going to accomplish these goals, and we're going to keep going. And so, again, most of these individuals, wonderful individuals that I mentioned, a doctorate degrees because they weren't satisfied with just getting a master's or just getting the base requirements. They wanted to really do some stuff. So this was Dr. Jane Cook Wright. All right. So we're doing pretty well on time. I want to probably do about two more individuals and then we'll wrap it up because again, the list is so extensive when it comes to individuals who have made some strides. And, and I'm sure you can probably hear the excitement. And, you know, I still get excited just learning about some of these individuals. So I hope that you can bear with me and, and I <clears throat> try to compose myself. But another one um, that I do not want to forget is Dr. Marilyn Hughes Gaston. Dr. Marilyn Hughes Gaston, okay? So Dr. Marilyn Hughes-Gaston, she 
um, is a pediatrician because she is still living, okay? Born in 1939, and she was the um, first Black woman to direct a public health service beret, okay? Beret. Now, this was groundbreaking because, um, you know, a lot of their research, or they had groundbreaking research focused on sickle cell disease that resulted just like Dr. Jane Cook Wright <clears throat> nationwide, okay? Nationwide. So when you hear that, that is big. Um, but this resulted in nationwide screening programs for children at birth. So this is very important because a lot of kids can have different diseases and, um, you know, especially minorities and not sure, at least, you know, the parents are not sure of what the issue could be. But Dr. Marilyn Hughes Gaston said, you know what? We got goals, but we got to keep this work going. And so this, you know, again, resulted in nationwide screening programs for children at birth. Um, let's learn more about Dr. Gaston. Let's see about Dr. Gaston. So she knew that she wanted to become a doctor. And <clears throat> I will tell you at the age of nine, she witnessed her mother fainting and, you know, she or her family knew, you know, what was going on, but also, you know, Dr. Gaston, she had a, a struggle growing up. They were economically disadvantaged. Uh, when it came to health insurance, they were uninsured, um, nor did they get the proper care. And so this led a spark to Dr. Gaston, you know, really wanting to do something differently not only for her mom, obviously, but to really see others around her impacted. Um, also during this time, you know, it was learned that her mother had cervical cancer. So likely the, the fainting that Dr. Gaston saw her mom experience um, after that, understanding, okay, what you know, type of issues or conditions that she have. And so they were able to realize that her mother had cervical cancer. So that was at age nine. So at age 12, um, Gaston's family moved out of public housing because prior to that, um, even up to most of her childhood, they were living in public housing. Okay. And so this allowed her to attend a college uh, preparatory school. So again, this is at age 12. Okay. At age 12, moved out of public housing, she started to attend a college preparatory school. And this is wonderful. And so, again, I want to kind of highlight, okay, again, I kind of want to highlight the issues that a lot of um, these individuals, African-Americans face, you know, such as racism, especially for women, sexism, okay, to pursue a, an advanced degree and to really be focused, but also to experience discrimination, to experience sexism, and then to experience racism. It was just a lot of, I would say that could be a lot mentally that you have to deal with, especially if it's every day you are having to experience certain comments. But again, they did not allow that to stop them because, you know, in front of their first name, they have doctor. Okay. So they weren't going to let any, you know, type of comments, you know, cause them not to get what they needed. So let's keep it moving. So Dr. Gaston, she, um, after she graduated high school, studied zoology at the University of Miami, okay, in Ohio. Not sure how that, 
I'm surprised by it. I don't think I ever heard of that. But anyway, so let's see. We want to keep it moving. So Dr. Gaston, get this, is was one of only six black women who graduated from the University of Cincinnati School of Medicine in 1964 that year so okay so she was only one of six black women who graduated from the university cincinnati um cincinnati school of medicine in 1964 okay and so in so let's see so she gained an interest in sickle cell sickle cell disease after she interned at philadelphia general hospital and, you know, again, she worked with infants who, you know, had issues at birth. And, you know, one of the things that she also did was, <clears throat> or one of the things that we can appreciate is, again, how to screen and treat um, SCD, which is sickle cell disease. So, you know, Dr. <clears throat> Gaston was continued to do some wonderful things. And I'm just going to get some brief highlights, move on to the last person, and we'll try to wrap this up. So she was able to secure some federal grants to study SED in children, published a groundbreaking study in 1986 that proved the effectiveness of long-term penicillin treatment to prevent infections in people with SCD, okay? And so by 1987, 40 states had SED screening programs, a move that saved countless lives so this didn't say a hundred or a thousand it said countless okay and this was across 40 states that had the scd screening programs so these are some highlights 1990 dr gaston <clears throat> okay dr gaston became the first black woman director of the bureau of primary health care in the u.s health resources and services administration okay in this position she controlled a five billion okay not five million but a five billion dollar budget okay and served over 12 million patients okay and get this whom were economically disadvantaged okay so 12 million individuals who likely would have or i probably would say a, a percentage of them would have likely struggled longer some may not have would have ever gotten the care but they were economically disadvantaged and they were served now again this is just some highlights for what dr gaston has done because you know as far as i know she still lives today and so it because of her you know wonderful service in 1999 she received the national medical association scroll of merit okay and she also got a day in <clears throat> she also has a day um in her honor so this is in cincinnati and lincoln heights ohio so she has a day named after her she has a uh, a scroll of merit that was presented to her in 1999 and then there is a scholarship program from the university of cincinnati college of medicine medicine excuse me that is established in her name okay and this is geared towards those who are economically disadvantaged. So, you know, Dr. Gaston has been putting in some work, still does, and is, you know, wonderful just hearing about her. So the last person that I do want to highlight is a person that I actually had to do when I was 
in school when it came to um, presenting about this person's life. And that is uh, George Washington Carver, George Washington Carver. Okay. So I can't remember if he was a doctor. It's been a while since I, you know, really dove into, um, you know, Mr. Carver, Dr. Carver, but Mr. Carver or Dr. Carver, I'm just going to say it until I figure it out. But he pretty much was instrumental when it came to understanding the, the, well, I pretty much say that he was pretty much an agriculturalist, um, a scientist, a botanist. Okay. So he helped with herbs and providing different remedies uh, when using certain herbs and plants. Um, so many other things. I mean, he pretty much did a little bit of everything. Um, <clears throat> early on in, in his childhood, I know he had whipping cough and, and he was small, frail, um, frail little child, but whipping cough is pretty much when your voice is high pitched. And so just like I'm talking to you right now, it is like a more high pitched. So say something to you that's how so that's kind of how it would sound and so because he had whipping cough and again he was frail he wasn't able to do a lot of field work okay and and so not being able to do a lot of field work he stayed inside and so um his adopted um i want to say his adopted mom at the time because i believe he was adopted taught him pretty much how to just care for the home. So learned how to do laundry, learned how to cook, learned how to embroider. Okay. Learned how to do a little bit of everything as it relates to the, the home. And so one of the things about um, Dr. Carver's, uh, <clears throat> Dr. Carver was that um, <clears throat> he wanted to really help um, at an early age, he helped farmers, you know, with their crops. And so they would call him the plant doctor because he would pretty much, you know, take what he learned from, you know, herbs, from just working with plants and even making different uh, remedies. He would take that and he would apply that to the upkeep when it came to crops. And one of the um, things that he is known for is being able to, again, utilize peanuts, uh, sweet potatoes, um, as well as soybean um, to enhance crops because at that time he also discovered that the the years that cotton was grown, it pretty much depleted the soil. At least this was in the South. And so, hold on, let's see. Uh -oh. Let's see. Get back. Okay. So anyway, so, you know, one of the things about um, Dr. Carver was that he learned again that cotton pretty much depleted the soil. And so peanuts, sweet potatoes, and soybeans, probably not the only products, but these are uh, three of the, the common ones that were used to pretty much helped to revitalize the soil. And that was one thing that he investigated as well as taught farmers how to do was that he pretty much gave them that use, you know, when it came to peanuts, because um, early on farmers, they, um, he pretty much introduced them to, you know, a lot of uh, peanuts or that they grew up peanuts, but then they found out what can we do with all of these peanuts? He got in his lab. He was like, you know what, we're going to figure out something. 
And I want to say from the time that he was in his lab, this is later in his career, he discovered over, I want to say it was over a hundred different uses um, or peanuts in the sweet potatoes, um, including soaps, uh, different different food um, formulations. Um, <clears throat> it is just countless in terms of what he was able to do um, during that time span. I'm not sure if it was just one night or if it was a week or a month, but he pretty much, you know, developed over 50 uses, at least that we are aware of. Um, just some other facts about it and we'll wrap it up. Um, he, so his last name, I didn't realize this was that he adopted his, um, I want to say Washington, not last name, but Washington, he adopted that, uh, once he met with Booker T. Washington. So they both actually taught at what is known as Tuskegee University, uh, which I <clears throat> believe that, um, Booker T, um, founded. And so, one thing that I really didn't realize was that, you know, Carver and Washington, they actually, you know, didn't always see eye to eye at times because, you know, Carver, he wanted to be more hands on when it came to science and, and wanted to really have his inventor hat on most of the times. But in, in that role, he had to also teach. He had to serve as, you know, the facilities um, coordinator, so or, or pretty much upkeeping the facilities, and that was one thing he wasn't interested in. And so, I think after Booker T. Washington died, he started to feel relieved because he was able to get into the lab and he was able to devote more time, you know, for um, just science and inventing different um, uses of, of products. Um, because uh, I want to say another. I may have been an African-American woman who was hired, who then started to teach the students. And so, again, that was just a little bit about his uh, time at Tuskegee University. Um, but again, it is so much uh, when it comes to George Washington Carver, a lot of things that he did, as well as Booker T. Washington. Um, another quick fact I want to point out was that excuse me, was that George Washington Carver was the first African-American to receive his bachelor's of science degree, okay? I'll say that again. He was the first African-American man to receive his bachelor's of science degree, okay? Now, that was something that I did not know about. But again, that, you know, to me spoke, you know, volumes in terms of, again, a lot of things that people had to um, experience and, you know, this is something when you think about what people had to do in order to get to where they were, as well as, you know, to make the, the, the strides and to even make the accomplishments that they did. So, again, this is just a snippet of, you know, some of the African-Americans who have made tremendous strides when it has come to um, health and wellness as, as well as, you know, those who, you know, continue, because again, some of these individuals, they um, are living currently, and some have actually passed on, but I know that they know that their family has taken on their legacy and continue to build on to that, um, as well as what they started continues to thrive. So again, this is a is some wonderful information. If you have a chance to explore African-Americans who have made 
wonderful contributions as it relates to nutrition, health, food, and, and so many um, other related topics. So hope that you enjoyed this segment. Um, I hope that you find it um, quite interesting because, again, I know I did. So if you did, make sure you give us a like, subscribe to our channel. That way you can stay up to date with the latest content as well as let us know how you thought about this episode because, again, this was one that we really wanted to switch it up. We wanted to make it more about those who have made some contributions but don't get the spotlight or even get the highlights. And so we wanted to present that to you, and hopefully you found this informational, intriguing, and even leads you to saying, you know what, let me see about some other people that I may not know about. So if that excites you, make sure you hit that like and subscribe button because you do not want to miss some of the latest, and I mean latest content that we present to you. So if you enjoyed that, again, hope that you like and subscribe to that. And until next time, I will talk to you 